This talk is offered by Ordinary Minds Zen teacher Andrew Tutel. Andrew is an Australian Dharma heir of Barry Majid and is dedicated to extending Barry's vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Find out more at ordinarymind.com.au. Andrew's Zen teachings are made possible by donations from people like you. So yesterday, I introduced you to the unfindability inquiry, embedded that in the story about Bodhidharma, and now we helped the second ancestor to pacify his mind, to find peace, by realizing that he couldn't find it. He'd searched everywhere. And that's what we have to do you know, for many years, often, search everywhere. Search among the dark, abandoned grasses, Zen often says. Searching, searching. For the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. But as uh, a great master storyteller, Joseph Campbell, reminds us the hero or heroine always winds up back where they started, at home. And our practice is to clarify what that home is. We also talked yesterday about the two truths, conventional truth and absolute truth. And we discussed how they come together as one. We tried to, I tried to bring that down from its lofty abstract heights. To what we're all familiar with. This waking up is, as Joko says, nothing special. The gateway is through the sound of the rain or the mountain stream or the pain in your legs or the anxiety in your belly. Each moment is it. But our default position is to say this is not it. This can't be it. And we need to explore that. Resistance. What obscures the simplicity of the rain falling? What obscures the peacefulness of the rain falling? Appearing in our minds. It's usually the preoccupation with me.
And that's not to minimize that in any way. I'm not trivializing that. I'm not trivializing the suffering we have all been through. We also um, had a discussion about how many, many people, not just now, but in the past, even in the past days of the old masters, struggled with the concept or teaching of no gain. Even Dogen, that was his main koan when he was a young man. If we are all originally enlightened, then why practice? That was his koan. If we are all originally enlightened, why don't I just go surfing? If we are all originally enlightened, why don't I just go and smoke dope? If we are all originally enlightened, why don't I just play music? They are all fine things to do. There are many, many ways in which we can spend our time. I guess from the pragmatic teachings of Buddhism, in a way it does tend to come back to that question of suffering. And um, surfing, smoking dope, playing music may alleviate suffering uh, while we are participating in those activities. They may not be suffering. But it's possible that suffering will return. And even when we practice uh, and awaken, you know, the, the, it's, more, it's, it's more about shifting our relationship to suffering in a way. If we can awaken to the simplicity of the sound of the rain, then maybe we can, um, you know, carry that uh, sense of um, times when we're feeling sad or down or blue um, with a little bit more compassion for ourselves. It's the nature of human beings to have mood shifts, ups and downs. Life's full of ups and downs. Um, it's a mistake really to think that the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow is a kind of um, forever eternal bliss. That's the stuff of fairy tales. That's, that's the stuff of religious nonsense. Um, there's not a paradise at the end of the road where we live happily ever after. There's more of a sense of being able to embrace being a human being and what all of that contains or entails. That we can accept a lot of the human being. And not only that, that we can maybe journey together with other human beings along the path and help each other out along the way. So this, this, this path, this practice doesn't offer a pot of gold, doesn't offer the paradise 
doesn't offer eternal happiness. It offers eternity. But eternity is not some blissful paradise in the future. Eternity is always now. And eternity can be a pain in the knee or anxiety in the belly. It manifests differently every moment. I'm going to read a story from K6 of the Koan collection called the Moomin Camp. And again, many of you have heard this one. It's called The World Honoured One Twirls a Flower. I'll just read the story. Once in ancient times, when the world-honoured one was on the vulture peak, he twirled a flower before his assembled disciples. All were silent. Only Maha Kasyapa broke into a smile. The world-honoured one said, quote, I have the eye treasury of right dharma, the subtle mind of nirvana, the true form of no form, and the flawless gate of the teaching. It is not established upon words and phrases. It is a special transmission outside tradition. And now entrust this to Maha Kasyapa. So the treasury, I treasury of the Dharma is actually a quote from Dogen's collected works called the Shobhan Genzo. Basically it's just teachings of the Dharma, teachings of reality, the truth of what is, complete Dharma. The subtle, subtle mind of Nirvana, this mysterious Awareness, presence, mind that we all share. This mystery of consciousness. Science cannot explain how, what consciousness is. There's no evidence that demonstrates that consciousness arises from the brain. It may do, but we just don't know. It may be that the brain arises from consciousness. We just don't know. There's no way science can actually tell us about that. It can describe how the brain lights up, or it can dissect the brain. But it cannot tell you what consciousness is. It's a mystery. This consciousness, this awareness, being aware of it, is awakening to it, the sound of the rain. What obscures it is normally our preoccupation with the self-centered dream. 
the separate self, which is always dissatisfied because it's always seeking for something in the future or regretting something from the past. It's the true form of no form. So we're one, we're at peace with the coming and going of all phenomena. Coming and going, but we're never astray. We're never, we're never away from home. Everything's flux, but we're at home. We're just abiding in that flux. We're at home in the flux of the coming and going. The flawless gate of the teaching. It's basically the, the teaching of Buddha way, the teaching of the Zen way. All phenomena are impermanent, all phenomena are interdependent, and there is no fixed self. And suffering arises when we resist that. This particular koan demonstrates a very, uh, in the Zen tradition, the distinction between what you might call discursive communication, like we're doing now, logic, rationality, and presentational communication, transcending, bypassing logic, going straight to the heart of the matter, directly pointing. So, the Buddha holds up a flower. In those days it was traditional to bring flowers to the teacher. So he picks up one of the flowers and he twirls it in his hand. That is the complete teaching. And Mahakashyapa breaks into a smile. He gets it. There was nothing transmitted to Mahakashyapa. Mahakashyapa recognized what was being transmitted. What would be another way of demonstrating something like that? Just presenting the teaching, doing a presentation. Ah. I'm not supposed to say that. <laughs> um, so in the in the Zen tradition, you'll find stories where you know the the monk will come up to the master and say, "Master, what's Buddha? What's the way?" And the, and sometimes the monk might just go raise a finger. Or in those days, the master might say, come here, <laughs> whack you in the face. <laughs> That's it. You got it? <laughs> we don't do that anymore. Mm. That's good. Sometimes it would be something like, 
I don't have a stick. No, simply. What's all that pointing to? Just this moment is it. Beyond words and phrases, it's not... Um, we are the universe. <laughs> How can the universe be incomplete? We only experience incompleteness because we experience ourselves as being separate from the universe. If you feel yourself to be separate, you feel incomplete. And that incompleteness kind of like goes within as well in terms of our internal divisions, which is what Barry tends to focus on more. The internal splits and parts that are cut off. That sense of not being whole in that way. But the inherent teaching is that we're already completely whole because we are the universe and the universe is manifesting in this consciousness this awareness so if we can presence that unconditioned awareness we can bring it into the bodies like we were talking about, embodying it, we can see that we're complete and bring that completeness into the parts of us that have been compartmentalized away in the form of thoughts, beliefs and physical sensations. Another similar teaching from the um, the uh, what's another uh, koan collection, two koan collections. One's called the Blue Cliff Record, and the other one's called the Book of Serenity. This similar story appears in both of them, and it's called Vima. Lakertri. Vimala Kirtri is the gate to the one and only. Um, Vimala Kirtri was a, a very interesting figure who lived at the time of the Buddha, the Shakyamuni Buddha, and uh, he was a lay person. And he was seen as being as wise or even wiser than Manjushri, the Bodhisattva of wisdom. Interesting, even in the very early teachings of Buddhism, there was this lay, this lay teacher um, who was equal to, all, to the best of them. And in this story, um, Vimala Kirtri asked Manjushri, who's the, the sort of like the, you know, the bodhisattva of wisdom, what is the bodhisattva's gate to the one and only? In other words, how does the bodhisattva enter the dharma gate of not two? Okay, so not two is just non-duality, not two. Manjushri says, I see it like this. 
In all phenomena there are neither words nor explanations, neither presentations nor knowledge. It is beyond all questions and answers. That is entering the gate to the one and only. That is the entering the Dharma gate of not two. And then Manjushri asked Vimalakirtri, all of us have finished giving our explanations. Now you should give your explanation. What is the Bodhisattva's gate to the one and only? What is the Dharma gate of the not two? What did he say? Does anybody know? He remained silent. brings us back to that. Silence is awareness. Silence is who we are. In the comment by the guy who collected the koans, there is nothing right that can truly be called right. There is no wrong that can truly be called wrong. With right and wrong eliminated, gains and losses are forgotten. It is all naked and exposed. In a sense, you know, words always fail us, and really, uh, silence expresses it all. It expresses the completeness of who we are. You know? it's, it's always, it's always present. We can rest in the silence. It's resting in awareness. Even when we are preoccupied with me, it's a little bit harder, but so sometimes we might be 100% preoccupied with me and we don't see the silence at all. Often that's the time when we get overwhelmed. Sometimes we might be able to see 50% of the silence and still be struggling with something, but seeing 50% of the silence can bring a containment to the whatever it is we're experiencing. It's not as solid and dense. We're more in touch with the flow, you know, we're more in touch with each moment changing. You know, concepts, words tend to prime. Sort of try and make things sort of stay the same. I mean, it, it is important to have a continuity. Of, I mean, we were talking yesterday about the fact that Phil doesn't exist. And finally he saw that last night and he realised he doesn't really exist. But um, it's still, we still need some sense of continuity. 
Um, um, and so do I. <laughs> I mean, if Phil went to work tomorrow and, and his work colleague said to you, G'day, Phil, how are you going? And Phil said, I don't know, Phil doesn't exist. <laughs> They're probably sent into, you know, uh, the um, impatient unit in Coffs Harbour. There's nothing wrong with personal identity. It's fine. Um, um, we, 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 it's necessary. And sometimes it can be very nice to reminisce about the past. It's not always a... a, a it's not, we don't always suffer because we have a memory. I mean, there are pleasant things about having memory as well. The thing about language is it has, it's, 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 it's a double-sided sword. It, 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 it um, allows ourselves to express, our, you know, in, in beautiful ways and have great ideas, and, but, but it also can catch us and cause us to suffer as well. The um, Coming back to the question of no gain, um, so this is what the teacher Dogen, most of us struggle with it as a concept because, you know, and, and, and I, I suppose it wasn't, wasn't that much different in those days uh, as it is now, like, uh, why are we doing this if we're not going to get something from it? So it's kind of like a whole kind of... Um, carrot and stick kind of culture where we so kind of want some kind of reward or reinforcement for doing something. Well, then that's one of the reasons why it's a radical, as Barry talks about it, being a radically subversive practice because it's not on the page of reward or punishment. It's, it's not or reinforcement. It's, it's not about getting anywhere or getting anything. And, you know, when you think about it, you reflect back on your own life and our culture, how we suffer in it as children and adults. Um, our culture is so much about being evaluated and assessed, being a success or a failure. This practice is right off that page. That's where the freedom is. You know, great social theorists of the 60s and 70s and 80s, like Foucault, talked about discipline and punishment, how it's just so intrinsic to our becoming a person. You can't even separate the person from discipline and punishment. It saturates our culture and society. It's such a hard struggle to bring about political change in that sense. But I'm not suggesting we, we don't continue to do our best to bring about a more socially just way of living. But Zen practice does allow us to taste freedom now. One of the problems with Marxism, for example, was it tended to mirror the messianic religions, that paradise was something in the future. 
and it didn't matter what means you used, the end was the most important. Hence, Stalinism. Everything can be justified because of the paradise down the road. Zen practice cuts through that. It's not some paradise in the future. Freedom is now. So for Dogen, he reverted, he, he reversed that. He said, Zazen is not a means to an end. It's the end. We start at the end in Zen practice. We're already enlightened. We don't have to gain enlightenment. Zazen, in its city form, Dogen, saw as being the beautiful human expression of completeness and a form. Completeness is not a form, it's formless. But we also form, we also have bodies. And when you look at the posture of seated meditation in a lotus, I don't sit, I've never sat in the full lotus position. But when you see those beautiful statues, you know, and the, the posture, it is a beautiful expression in form of completeness, don't you think? Like if you wanted to picture or draw completeness in the human form, how would you draw it? And um, so we start at the end. So he totally pulled the rug out from, you know, this notion of stages or progress along the path. Because that, again, it's always somewhere down the road. And you never get that. So he said that practice is realization. This was his solution, his resolution of his personal koan. Why do I have to practice if I'm already enlightened? When I was talking previously about I could go surfing or I could smoke dope or I could play music, well, this is exactly the way in which the beat generation interpreted Zen Buddhism, Kerouac and his friends. Anybody familiar with Jack Kerouac? Novelist, wrote On the Road and other novels. His, his novels are littered with Zen Buddhism, right? What happened to him? Does someone want to tell us? He, uh, he drank himself to death. He drank himself to death. Yeah. Lived with his mum at the end and drank himself mm -hmm. to death. So even though this is why um, we still emphasize practice, but practice is realization. Every moment you're practicing, you're realizing. Every moment you're realizing, you're practicing. 
So the practicing and realization, as I said before yesterday, doesn't stop when we get off our chair or our cushion. We continue practicing and realizing throughout the day. If we were living as a monk, the whole life of the monk in Dogen's time would have been all of it was a sacrament, all of it was a ritual, even going to the toilet, like every aspect of the monk's life was it, and done in reverence. See, we get so preoccupied with me and, and getting on and accomplishing something that we miss the whole point, and it's the beauty which is all around us right now that there's nowhere to go and nothing to do. But it's very hard for the human mind to get itself around that one. That's why uh, other animals seem to have an easier time. You know, we all know how happy and content dogs will be with some love and some food. They don't need to read philosophy books or pursue wealth. But human beings probably because of language, um, get caught in this sense of lack all the time, of missing something, of incompleteness. And of course we've got the whole mess that we get ourselves into politically and socially, whereas sometimes we have no choice but to resist in terms of political resistance. That's another story. The old feminist mantra that the personal is political is still really irrelevant. I'm having some discussions with some people yesterday about even in the uh, ecological struggles, it's really important, or activism, that the means embody the end, that, that we don't commit the same mistakes that Marxism and other progressive social movements committed. That our inclusivity has to be radical, our inclusivity has to be include everyone, every being. We can't split off Donald Trump from humanity, even though we might like to. He's a part of us. We all have a Donald Trump. Some more than others. You mean the Donald Trump within? Hmm? Is that you mean the Donald Trump within us? Yeah. Mm-hmm. To embrace it. Get in touch with the So again, it's this sense of separateness, the sense the separate self itself is resisting or clinging. And it's, 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 the, it's the activity of all of that. And um, the separate self can't, it, it dissolves in when we presence unconditioned awareness, it doesn't exist there. It's because com- unconditioned awareness is complete. 
There's no separate self in the sound of the rain. So the freedom uh, in Buddhism um, is more about um, freedom from the activity of the separate self. And the freedom to respond from that space of non-separation. So being just this moment, compassion's way. We respond from a place of non-separation. And sometimes that might be saying no. Compassion is not always, you know, something where you always surrender or give in. Compassion is the expression of wisdom. Wisdom's more reception. Prajna, wisdom, wisdom beyond wisdom, awareness, that's more the receiving, the receptivity, which is all inclusive and all accepting of everything. And the wisdom that responds is compassion. But really, wisdom and compassion are not separate things. They're not the two wings of the one bird. Compassion is the expression of wisdom. Wisdom is non-separateness. So where we finished the other day too, when we were talking about inquiry, is that that's just an extension of our practice it's another practice which is intention is to free us from a sense of separateness, from the separate self. And using inquiry to free ourselves from separateness.